word. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. I just want to thank the choir. John Rudder is my favorite, and uh, it was a great joy at the 830, having not fully paid attention to the worship booklet to hear the first notes of For the Beauty of the Earth, which is one of my favorites. Um, So that was fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. This morning we come towards the end of Jacob's story uh, and having been wrestled down by God, as we saw in the last chapter at Peniel, we may be wondering, did did Jacob actually change? Uh, And if, if he changed, what would be the marks of that change? How would we know that Jacob changed? Of course, we're not just wondering that about Jacob. Um, If you're like me at all, sometimes you wonder whether or not you've changed. To be sure, some of you have had wonderful and amazing conversions where it's night and day different between what you were and what you are now. But for many of us, as we're on this this road to the celestial city, we may wonder whether, in fact, we have changed. And so this text in God's Word, this place in the Bible, gives us some some uh, lines of evidence, some marks that we might notice about how it is that God transforms us and how we might take fresh courage and confidence that in fact God is changing us. But in order for us to have such courage and confidence, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come to you as your people this day, desiring to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Lord, even as we come to this place in the Bible, uh, we cannot come by just unaided human reason and expect to hear your word. We need the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray then, come, open our eyes of faith that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 31, excuse me, Genesis chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes... And looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided his, the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in the front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. 
But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on solely at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he created an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the things my son Ben and I have been doing is we've been going back through the movies that make up the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the, the so-called Avenger movies. And, and instead of watching the movies in the order they were released, we've been watching them grouped together. So all four Avenger movies in a row and all three Iron Man in a row. We've also been re-watching the Captain America movies, and that's been a lot of fun. And it's been a lot of fun to be reminded from that first Captain America movie, just the amazing special effects, the, the CGI that was used. Uh, you might remember, if you saw the movie, that it, it opens with Steve Rogers, who's played by Chris Evans, as this 125-pound weakling. Um, he ends up being beat up all the time in various alleys. He's being protected by his friend Bucky, and he's ignored by the girls with whom they double date. But, but after Dr. Abraham Erskine gets a hold of Rogers and injects him with the special serum and shoots him with the Vita rays, he emerges out of that whole process not as a skinny weakling, but, but instead as a thoroughly buff and ripped Captain America. And what makes it so amazing in the movie, as I said, is the, is the CGI. You have Steve Rogers' head and his body, but, but it's not Chris Evans' body. And yet it is in some way. They, they have this ability to make him look so crazy skinny and then instantly to be as he actually is in real life. He's buff and ripped. It's an amazing transformation that special effects um, did in that movie. But wouldn't it be great if in life you could, you could see that kind of transformation? If you could go on a diet, for example, and after one day, boom, see, instant transformation. You've lost 10 pounds, and everybody's complimenting on how great you look. Or if you go after your January 1st resolutions, and you go to the gym, and after a month, boom, you know, you're, you're suddenly buff and ripped, and all this transformation. You've seen the progress that's been made just, in a, just instantly. Of course, we know life doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with our diets or working out. We wish it could work that way, though, spiritually, don't we? Uh, I mean, to be sure, some of you, as I've said, had remarkable conversions. One day you were walking in darkness. The next day after Jesus saved you, you knew you were walking into light. But I suspect for most of us, the kind of change that we've experienced over time has been hard gain and slow going. 
And there have been times, perhaps, we've wondered, is God changing me at all? Have I, have I been, am I different at all? Have, has God been transforming me at all? I mean, we boldly claim that grace transforms, and yet we wake up this Sunday, and we don't feel that different from last Sunday, or five Sundays ago, or five years ago, or 15 years ago of walking with Jesus. And we begin to wonder, has God changed me at all? What I want to suggest to you this morning from this place in the Bible is, yes, God does change us. He does, in fact, transform us. In the same way that God changed Jacob, so he's changed us. Here in Genesis, God's wrestled Jacob to the ground. He's, he's conquered him. He's begun to change him. He's, he's even marked by his encounter with God, both physically and spiritually. And in chapter 33, what you find is the proof that God has begun to change him. Four lines of evidence, four marks of God's transforming work in Jacob's life. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is these four marks, these four lines of evidence of God transforming Jacob, they're the same four marks you can look for in your own life to see how God is in fact transforming you. How God, by his grace, by his power, is changing you. And the first mark that we find here in the Bible is the mark of repentance. Now, it might be, not be obvious here in Genesis 33 how Jacob is expressing repentance in this scene with Esau. But I think he is in, in that in several ways. First of all, look at the first verse. Genesis 33, verse 1. Jacob lifted up his eyes. Look, behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in the front. Then Leah with her children. And Rachel and Jacob last of all. And he himself went on before him. So what you have here is Jacob is finally seeing Esau with his 400 fighting men with him. And so he divides up his family. And he puts them in order, but, but notice where Jacob's position is. He doesn't come after his family. He doesn't think, oh, wait, let's let the women and children go first, and maybe then I'll, I'll get off in some way. No, he, he's standing in front of them. He's standing in front of them in order to be held accountable, but also, if necessary, to give up his life to protect them so that they might go free. I want to suggest that... That's probably different from the way Jacob was before, at least as we've gone through the last several chapters and we've seen Jacob and the way he's operated. Jacob does not strike us as someone of great moral and physical courage. He's much more willing to work at the margins, to come at the angle, to work slant. But here, Jacob, as part of his transformation as part of his repentance is standing in front to be held accountable by Esau and if necessary to die for his family but then he not only is not standing not only is is he standing in front but he repeatedly prostrates himself before his brother that's the rest of verse three he himself went on before them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother now, this was the proper signal of respect from a vassal to a master. But here, especially, it's an acknowledgement 
of what was Isaac's intended blessing, not for Jacob, but for Esau. You see, back in Genesis chapter 27, when Esau was blessing whom he thought was Esau, he actually says in Genesis 27 verse 29, let peoples serve you, nations bow down to you, be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Now Isaac thought he was delivering those words to Esau, actually, delivered them to Jacob in disguise, but here... Jacob's repentance is demonstrated in him giving Esau his due, bowing down to his brother Esau in line with his father's blessing. It's part of his repentance. He's trying to give the blessing back, that which he had taken from him wrongly. He's trying to restore to him. And you see that finally in the gifts that he makes to Esau. Did you notice what he calls these gifts? If you look at verse 11, you see it. He says, please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Please accept my blessing. That, that's a charged word between Esau and Jacob. Because, of course, what was it that Jacob had stolen from Esau? That's right, his blessing. And so part of the repentance that Jacob is offering here is he's trying to return to Esau the, the blessing that was rightfully his, the one that Jacob had stolen by deception and deceit. Now, in all of this, you can see that Jacob is doing more than saying, I'm sorry. Hey, buddy, if I, if I offended you somehow back there 20 years ago, eh, you know, I'm sorry. No, this is more than that. His repentance actually takes specific action here to demonstrate the change that God's made in him. He's concerned to bring forth fruit in, in keeping with repentance. Now, friends, you've got to understand how important this is as a mark of God's transformation and how little we understand the nature of true repentance. And yet this is what the Christian life is all about the first of the, the rightly celebrated 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed on the Wittenberg church door was repentance is the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of repentance. That's what our life is. And, and repentance is not simply an event. It's actually a process that's, that's brought out and demonstrated in tangible actions. The Apostle Paul tells us that this is what godly grief, at least repentance, looks like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. What's Paul saying there? These Corinthians, because of their grief over their sin, were eager to demonstrate their repentance. And they did not stop until repentance had been fully demonstrated and fully made. They were willing to pursue repentance as a long obedience in the same direction. I'll never forget sitting in my office in one of the churches where I served with a man named Mike. Mike was a truck driver. 
uh, and on the long times uh, on the road over time, Mike developed a very significant sex addiction. Uh, not only a heavy use of pornography, but was stopping at those roadside places that you see advertised on billboards and racked up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars at those places. Eventually his wife found out, which brought Mike to my office where he was weeping um, over what he had done. And so we worked through, began to work through a process, we got Mike some counseling and therapy, got him with a, a group to hold him accountable. Uh, and it seemed as though for the first six weeks or so, things were going okay until Mike was back in my office. And he's saying to me, Sean, why doesn't my wife forgive me? After all, I confessed. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Why won't she forgive me? I say, well, two things here. One, how long did this sin go on? How long did you deceive your wife? It might take a little while for this process of repentance to build trust once again. But second, part of what godly grief looks like and part of the transformation that God works in our hearts and lives looks like is we're willing to own our sin and to confess it and to repent and to continue to pursue down a pathway in order to demonstrate the fruits of repentance. I wonder this morning if there's some area where you know that you have been dealing with a sin and you've just been sweeping it under the rug Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's just you privately and your spouse doesn't know. Your husband doesn't know. Your wife doesn't know. Perhaps it's with a coworker, a friend, someone here in the church. But there's some pattern of sin or there's something, some event where you know you've sinned and you know that you need to repent. You know it. It's brought about a breach between brothers, a breach between sisters, breach between families breach between you and a co-worker, whatever it is. What does godly grief look like? What, is, what does gospel transformation look like so that you can actually own your sin? Not to say, well, you know, I, if you were offended by that, I, I didn't intend to hurt you. I don't think I really did anything wrong. No. What does it look like to say, I was wrong? I was wrong. This is how I made you feel. This is why I was wrong. I hate my sin. I'm turning from it. Please forgive me. Is there someone you need to speak to about that? Because the first mark of gospel transformation, when God transforms someone, is repentance. And it's a repentance that leads to the second mark, which is reconciliation. Um, that's what goes on here. Ultimately, as, as Jacob is trying to work out the fruits of repentance before his brother Esau, it's towards a, a reconciliation, which is exactly what seems to happen in verse 4. I mean, it, verse 4 is so bracing and amazing. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, those of you who've spent much time in your Bibles, you might recognize that language. It sounds really familiar to something else in the New Testament. I'll tell you what it is, the parable of the prodigal son. When Jesus tells that parable in Luke 15, he says his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. In the same way, Esau, he, he extends a gracious reception he, he extends a willingness, it appears, 
to forgive in order to be reconciled to his brothers. But this isn't just Esau towards Jacob. It's also Jacob towards Esau. How do I know? Because the Bible doesn't say that Esau wept. What does it say? Verse 4. And they wept. These tears, the tears of repentance and tears of grief, 20 years of hurt and grudge, perhaps even a little bit of joy. They're, they're signs of a reconciliation that's being affected, but that's not all. Because Jacob's own language points to his desire for forgiveness and reconciliation. Look at verse 8. So Esau says, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now twice here, Jacob uses this word favor. Show me your grace. It's the same Hebrew word that gets translated either favor or grace in the Old Testament. Show me your grace which, of course, is signaling his desire to resume relationship with Esau. But not only resume relationship, in order to gain Esau's forgiveness. And, and so in order to know that grace, in order to know such favor, he asked Esau to accept my present from my hand. That word accept will be used in Leviticus for God accepting or receiving a sacrifice and so extending mercy. Likewise, the word present shows up in Leviticus for all sorts of sacrifices. In other words, Jacob is explicitly attempting to propitiate Esau's wrath in order to be reconciled with him. In the same way that God had shown Jacob favor, in the same way that God had shown Jacob grace, his steadfast love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his transforming grace, so Jacob desires Esau to do. I think this is important for us. Because we profess here to be those who have known reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. This whole service, the, the themes of this service have pointed us in that direction. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. He's the one who's propitiated our sins, and not just for our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world, for all kinds of people in this world. Christ's death, his blood, is the propitiation. Why do we need propitiation? Because God has just wrath against us. Because of our sin and sinning. Because of what we have done and what we have left undone. Because of our transgressions and our lack of conformity to the law of God. God has a just and judicial wrath against us. And yet God in his great mercy and his great grace is favor to you. Because you have pled the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's wrath towards you has been propitiated, has been satisfied. So that now there has been atonement made. You are now at one, right? Atone and at one come from the same root. Atonement. There's, there's reconciliation. You are at one with one another. You've been reconciled. But that reconciliation is not just vertical. It's also supposed to be worked out horizontally. It's because you have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ that it's even possible to be reconciled to one another, whether it's in your marriage or your family, whether it's in your neighborhood or in the workplace or here in this church, the only possibility for at one with each other to be reconciled to each other is the blood of Jesus Christ. So I wonder this morning, 
With whom do you need to be reconciled? Who do you need to be at peace with? Where does there need to be forgiveness sought and forgiveness given? You, you can't just sit there and say, well, he sinned against me, she sinned against me. And I'm just going to sit back and wait until they figure out how they've sinned against me. And if they figure it out and they come to me repentant, then I might forgive. No, we can't say that. Jesus points us in two directions here. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself said, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Matthew chapter 5, it's when you've sinned against your brother, and you remember, you recall the mind that you've sinned against him, and he has something against you. Leave the worship service, go be reconciled to your brother. But then in Matthew 18, Jesus turns it all around. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Here, it's when someone else has sinned against you, you go. So whether you've sinned against someone and you, or someone else has sinned against you, we still need to go. We still need to be the people of reconciliation, working out this horizontal forgiveness and repentance and at one Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. In fact, John will say in 1 John, how can you say you love God and you don't love your brother, you don't love your sister? Well, what does love look like, John? It looks like this. This is the mark. Repentance, which leads to reconciliation. Is there someone with whom you need to be reconciled? Do you hear God telling you, yeah? Is there a face that comes to mind? If so, the third mark is, is right before you because the third mark of God's transformation in your life, repentance, reconciliation, the third mark, obedience. Again, you see this in Jacob's life, I think. Because Esau and Jacob, they've begun the process of reconciliation. And as part of this renewed relationship, Esau wants Jacob to come to Edom, to his, his city, Seir. But what was God's plan for Jacob all along? What did God say to him back in chapter 30? Do you remember? Go home. Go back to your father's house. Go back to the promised land. That's what started this entire adventure. And so Jacob knows that, that God's expectation, the revealed will of God for him, having left Padan Aram, is to make it back home, to go back to the promised land. And so while Esau's gesture was probably kindly meant, Jacob deflects any attempt to distract him from obedience to the revealed will of God. Esau wants to accompany Jacob. But Jacob demurs and declines the assistance. Esau wants to send some of his fighting men with Jacob. Jacob says, no, there's no need. And so Esau will finally head back to Edom. And Jacob heads to Succoth, which is a town directly on the east side of the Jordan River, looking into the promised land. But that's not the ultimate stopping point. How does the chapter end? Well, verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. What is Moses telling you there? He made it home. 
He was obedient to the express, revealed will of God. God had said, go back home. Go back to the promised land. Go back to your father's house. Go back home. And Jacob refused to be distracted or deflected from the revealed will of God. He went back home. Is there an area of obedience where God's clearly speaking to you? And you've been allowing yourself to be distracted and deflected from it. Perhaps it's spending time in God's word day by day. Your Bible sits there on your coffee table in your house or your apartment. You walk by it, you see it, you feel a pang of guilt, and then you put it out of mind and you go on your way. But you know that you ought to spend daily time with God, daily communion, real relationship with the God of heaven through Jesus by the Spirit. You know that. Is today the day you pick up the Bible off the table? And you say, Lord, please, I'm going to start at Matthew 1. And today I'm going to I'm going to determine and tomorrow and the next day and the next day to spend time with you in your word. He doesn't use that as example. There may be something else where God is clearly telling you, this is what I want you to do. Will you be determined by the power of the Holy Spirit not to be deflected, not to be distracted, but to be obedient to what God's calling you to do? That's that's a mark of God's transforming work in your life. But all of these things, repentance and reconciliation, obedience, they lead to the final mark, the final line of evidence that God's actually changing you, and that's worship. Worship is that fourth and final aspect. When Jacob was at Bethel, he had taken the, the, the pillow, the rock that he had been sleeping on when he saw the vision of the, of the ladder between earth and heaven and the angels ascending and descending upon it. He, he takes that rock and he pours oil on it to mark the occasion, but, but we don't get the sense there that he worships. In fact, unlike his grandfather Abraham, you don't see uh, any place in the story of Jacob that we have from chapter 25 to this point where Jacob builds an altar to worship God until the end of this chapter. In the very last verse, and so from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought a hundred pieces of money, the land, piece of land on which he had pitched his tent, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now this is significant. Unlike Abraham, his grandfather, unlike his father Isaac, who simply had wells and a burial plot, Jacob has another stake in the promised land. He's bought a piece of land. And what does he do with that land? Well, at least part of what he does is he builds an altar. And who, to whom does he call and what does he name it? El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. Who's Israel? That's right. That's Jacob. What is Jacob doing here? Well, he's worshiping his, this God as his God. All of the struggle with Jacob, it culminates at this point. All of the wrestling with Jacob, it, it culminates at this point. No longer does he know this God as, as his grandfather's God or as the fear of his father Isaac. No, now he knows this God as his God. This God is God, the God of Israel. The name he gave me, the one who struggles with God, the one who's a prince with God, he's my God. And isn't that where all of this transformation ultimately ends? In our worship of God as our God? How do we know this God as our God? That's right, through the blood of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we might have a genuine relationship with God. That verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, comes at the end of a section where God, through Paul, says, be reconciled to God. Well, how? How are we to be reconciled to God? Through what Jesus Christ has done. Through what Christ crucified has done for you. As he's displayed his love to you and shown again his deep care and compassion for you. How is it that God changes us? How is it God transforms us as we come to the cross of Christ? As we come once again, and we say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My sins have left a crimson stain. He's washed me white as snow. Friend, you are, the, you are more than the worst thing you've ever done. And Jesus can wash that worst thing away. And so I wonder this morning, as you look in the mirror of God's word, what do you see? Do you see someone who is being, being transformed, who, who's being changed by this God whom you've come to know in Jesus Christ? As you look in the mirror of God's word, what, if you don't see those things, what are you going to do about it? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we do come to you through Jesus by the Spirit. And we hear the Savior say, your strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me your all in all. Lord, it's because through Jesus Christ you have paid it all. That we owe everything to you. Part of that owing means living out of the grace that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, grant us grace this day to see ourselves as we are in the light of your word and to pursue the transforming work you are doing in our lives. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your worship booklets. There you'll find our hymn of